0: Okay, if you guys have a Bible, if you have a Bible, please grab it. We're looking at two passages. One of those passages we're looking at today is in Exodus chapter 20. The other one is in Matthew chapter 5. They're both in your bulletin. Please give your attention to it now as Kendall reads God's Word for us. Uh, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13 says, You shall not murder. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you take this text now, and would you open it up for us so that we can understand what you mean by it? And change us, we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. In your name, amen. Last summer, at the end of the world, in Yomol, Siberia, Russia, there is a tundra that men have flown over many, many times, and scientists who study the tundra of Siberia know it very well. But last summer... They were flying over the tundra, and they noticed something that they had never seen before. (laughs) This giant Siberian sinkhole was not there in the summer of 2013. Same flight path, same tundra they've studied for years. And all of a sudden, flying over, they noticed this incredible hole that looks like, it's not a sinkhole, it looks like something erupted out of it because of the formations of the earth around it. and But it has the sinkhole-like aspects of having water pour into it. They really can't figure out what it is. But it wasn't there only months before they made that flight. When you look at a passage like Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, it seems very simple. It's like a tundra you've flown over many times. Thou shalt not kill. But when you begin to look at the passage, you recognize that it is like a massive sinkhole that you have to explore and examine because there's more to it than meets the eye. Today, listen, someone says to you, okay, okay, Christian, let me ask you a question. You believe you shall not kill, right? Like, don't you believe thou shall not kill? You believe that, right? How come your God doesn't? He wiped out towns. He slaughtered people. Thou shalt not kill. You believe in Thou shalt not kill, right? Oh, interesting. What about physician assisted suicide? There are five states in our great land that have legalized physician assisted suicide. Are those physicians breaking this commandment? What about abortion? Never? What about in the case of the life of the mother? Or rape or incest? Listen, you believe thou shalt not kill. Oh, but there are a whole bunch of questions that make that harder than it merely reads, isn't it? This is a tough passage. And therefore, we're going to spend two weeks on it. And today, what I want us to do is I want us to look at the framework of the commandment. And the next week, We're going to answer specific questions, and here's how we're going to answer those specific questions. As you're listening to the sermon today, you have freedom to email me whatever question you want. And I will, I know that's risky, I will do the best I can to address those questions in next week's sermon. This week, we're going to talk about the focus of the command, the framework for ethics, and the function of the command right, the focus of the command, the framework for ethics today, and what the function of the command is for us. And next week, we're going to mention specific applications of this command that the Bible allows us to make, some of which you may believe, but the Bible doesn't give you the reason to believe it. Maybe wisdom does. But next week, we're going to talk about what the Bible does and does not allow with the specific application to ethical issues. Make sense? Okay, Siberian sinkholes. It's not as easy as the tundra that you think it is. It's there's more to it than that. But scripture does make it clear. So let's look at it together. The focus of the command, the framework for ethical issues, and the function of the command. Are you ready? All right. First, the focus of the command. There are only two words that are used in this commandment in Hebrew, lo ratzka. No killing. <laughs> Have you ever seen the Cowboy Ten Commandments, right? No killing. That's exactly what it says in Hebrew. The, the word ratzka here is it's comparatively rare, but it usually implies violent killing. It usually implies premeditated killing, that you are thinking about it before the act. But... It can also mean manslaughter or negligent homicide. For example, there's a place in Deuteronomy 19, some of you may have read before, some of you may have no idea that there's a book in the Bible called Deuteronomy, but there's a place in Deuteronomy chapter 19 where it says that if there is a person out in the field and he is cutting the forest with an ax and he swings the ax and the ax blade flies off and it kills a man, right? The word that he uses for kills there is the same word that he uses in the commandment, ratzka. So the word ratzka means something broader than murder. I'm sorry. Something not as narrow as murder, but it means something, how should I say it? It means to intentionally kill somebody. It means... Negligent homicide, it means manslaughter. In other words, it is not, it is narrower than the word kill. This is what I meant to say. But it's broader than the word murder. Are you with me? Okay, clear as mud. All right, it's narrower than the word kill, but it's broader than the word murder. That's what the Hebrew word actually means. That's, the, that's exactly what it means. So, when God delivers this commandment for the first time, he's given it to whom? He's given it to Israel, And they are at the foot of Mount Sinai. Remember, all of the law was given to Israel for the first time when they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. And Moses receives this command, and he speaks it to Israel. And he speaks it in the context of all of Exodus chapter 20, of course. And later in verses 16 and 17, the ninth and the tenth commandment, it's applied to your neighbor, right? You shouldn't bear false testimony against your neighbor. You shouldn't covet what is your neighbor's. And Israel would have understood this command as saying, you should not kill your neighbor. You should not kill someone who is in covenant community with you. So, the word ratzka means something narrower than the word kill, but broader than the word neighbor. I mean, broader than the word murder. Now... That's the focus of what the command actually means. Now let's think about a framework. The Bible is a book about life and death. God tells us in Genesis chapter 1 that he is the Lord of life, that he made the waters. Indeed, he made the whole world to swarm with the living creatures. And he gave all these creatures the breath of life. And in his creation, man was... um, The centerpiece of that creation because it was man who was made in the image of God. And God says in a very dramatic way that he took dust and he personally breathed life into that dust. Whereby the man was made in his image and he became a living, breathing being. Genesis 2-7. And then David says later in the Psalms, in Psalm 139, Psalm many of you know... He says, For you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, yet there was not one of them. And in the middle of the garden, God placed a tree, didn't he? And that tree was called the tree of life. And it was a symbol for man to have life to the fullest, to have life as God intended you to have life, perfect relationship with God, your creator, and perfect relationship with one another, with Adam and Eve. And from the very beginning of the Bible, you see a very powerful principle that you have to lay down when you think about the ethics of the sixth commandment. And the principle is this. There is sanctity for human life, for God created man in his image, and he delights in life. There is sanctity in human life, for God created man in his image, and he delights in life. Now, let's take this a little further. The word that most clearly summarizes what happened when Adam fell in sin is the word death. The Bible is a book about life and death, right? The garden shows us life, and when Adam sinned, the consequence was death. God said before the fall in Genesis 2.17, if you obey me, you will live. If you disobey me, you will die. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return, Genesis 3.19. Paul says in Athens, in Acts 17 in the New Testament, He says, And God made one man from every nation, from one man, every nation of mankind, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, yet He is actually actually not far from each of us. God has determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. That means that God knows your birthday, He also knows your death day. He also knows your address. So while we can say, yes, we believe in the sanctity of human life because God created life, He created man in His image, and He delights in life, you can also, by way of a corollary, lay down another principle that God establishes the place and the timing of death. Are you with me so far? Fairly simple but you walk out of this room and you talk about this in the public and people debate this all over the place. From the fall onward, man has bristled against these twin truths. And we have struggled against our Creator to take away those principles from Him and for us to determine when life begins and when life ends. In fact, the essence of sin is removing that right from God is for us to say, no, 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 we don't want you to make those decisions for us. I'm going to determine not only when, I'm, when life exists, an ethical question, but I'm also going to determine what makes the best life now. In other words, I believe that the best life that I can have is true life, according to my agenda and not according to yours. So put away all of your commands, put away all of the things the Bible says. Let me just live my life. In this post-fall environment, the first son of Adam and Eve, Cain, delights in life according to his agenda. So what does he do? He kills his brother. And ever since Cain killed Abel, mankind has struggled with the boundaries of life and death. Let me give you an example. And when you're talking about the genealogies of Adam, right, in Genesis chapter 5 all of the genealogies end in the same way, except for Enoch's. And they end with, what do they say? It says, the words, and he died. And then in Genesis chapter 6, which begins with a limitation on the human lifespan to 70 years. And Genesis 6 ends with the destruction of every life on earth, except eight people through the flood. And man's consistent strategy to experience life by their own demise, their own strategies, To determine when life was sacred and when life was not, to determine how they would live life and how they wouldn't. In their attempts to beat death, the Bible says, the Bible says it incurred God's wrath and God's judgment. Because death, just like life, is spiritual according to Scripture. Physical death ends our participation in the earthly life, and spiritual death is a loss of our fellowship with God, the Lord of life. And with the loss of our spiritual relationship with God comes a spiritual death. And while we don't physically die yet until the Lord takes our life according to his timing, yet we live in brokenness and sin, struggling again and again against these twin ideas that God determines life and God determines death. We want our best life now how we want it. And that is at the root of most of our sin and God holds out hope for extraordinary human life for us as Christians. Because into this bleak post-fall picture of death, he gives us whom? The author of life, as Paul calls him in Genesis, or Peter calls him in Genesis, uh, Acts chapter 3. Okay. No, no, no. Wait for a second, Christians, because... Christianity actually seems to be brought about not by a story of life, but by a story of death. Have you ever read the book of Joshua? Haven't you seen how they wiped out Jericho and Ai? It seems that God just wiped out those towns. It seems that God is a primitive, leftover deity from some old religion where a peevish-minded man demands blood in order to assuage his wrath. How do you explain that? Listen, we live in a culture that's predominantly Christian today, but one day we won't. And that question—if you've never been faced with it yet—you one day will be. So, how do you begin to address questions like that? It's—it's it's, it's honest. So, let's make an attempt at it. Are you and I better than those people that were in Jericho or AI? Is it fair? That God doesn't wipe out wasso. If we're going to talk about fairness, let's talk about fairness. I mean, was it fair that he wiped out Jericho or Ai? Well, why wouldn't he wipe out Owasso too? He hasn't, has he? Why? Because in some miraculous way, God has set his love upon you. God has come to you and said, look, I am true to my character and to my covenant, and I have made a covenant with you, my people. And I will never go back on that. I cherish you and I love you. So the real question isn't that we should be punished because of our blatant disrespect and disobedience. No, we should too be wiped out just like Jericho and Ai, but we're not. That's the real question. The real question is, how come he hasn't done this more, not less? Because in the face of an infinitely beautiful and holy and just and righteous God who determines the boundaries of life and death, he has created a people who have utterly rebelled against that principle. And isn't it amazing that he would extend grace to us? That's the real question. How are you and I even having this conversation? Not, why did he wipe out all of those cities in the Old Testament? Because on the cross, God does not demand our blood, but he offers his own. That's the reason why he doesn't wipe us out. He has demanded blood, but do you know whose blood he demanded? He demanded blood of someone who's not just a neighbor. Listen to me well, friends. It wasn't just a covenant neighbor, somebody in the covenant community, It was somebody in his own family, not just somebody in his own family. It was his son, not just a son. It was his only son. And the father demanded the son's blood. He killed for you. What do you mean he killed for me? Well, Isaiah 53 says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, speaking of Jesus, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This is not manslaughter. It was the will of the Lord. This is not negligent homicide. It says he has put him to grief. God saved your life through the taking of another life. And the mystery of the intra-Trinitarian... I I know it's a bit The intra-relationship between God that he has as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit... How can that be possible, that God would allow his son to die? It is a mystery in the mind of God how he was able to do that. But we only know one thing. He did it because he loved you. And he determines the boundaries of life and death. And he hasn't taken our life from us, even though we have blatantly disregarded him, because he has taken another's life so that you might live. The essence of sin, as I said earlier, is trying to create the good life without the author of life. Looking to yourself to know what life is and not looking to God. And Jesus says, friends, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John says that it was in him was life and that the life was the light of men. And when someone wrongs you and you have a deep sense of hurt, you can either forgive Or you can take out your vengeance on that person. And God the Father took out his vengeance, his wrath on his only son for you. So, the framework, when we talk about frameworks for understanding ethical issues, we see very clearly that life and death is God's business. He brings things to life, and it's God's business when he chooses to end their life. And we respect life out of our reverence for God. And we should specifically respect human life because it's made in the image of God. Now, don't you wish sometimes Jesus would just would be your preacher and he would come up here and he would make up for a lot of loss? I know that you're suffering and struggling with the B team here, but here's the deal. I sometimes wish that if Jesus... Jesus would just sit with me and tell me what this text means. It would be so great, wouldn't it? And there are only a few times in the Bible when actually he does. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus preaches on this very topic. And he shows us what the function of the command is. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21 through 26, I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have said it was uh, you've heard it said from those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, whoever raka, it means to think of someone as worthless in the Greek, or says to somebody, you're a moron, moros in Greek, you fool, is liable to judgment. Hmm. That's a little closer to home for me. Stephen Hicks, 18. Stephen Tuomi, 25. Edward Smith, 27. Richard Guerrero, 22. Anthony Sears, 26. Raymond Smith, 32. Ernest Miller, 22. David Thomas, 22. Curtis Strotter, 17. Errol Lindsay, 19. Tony Hughes, 31. Con Synthesiphone 14, Matt Turner, 20, Jeremy Weinberger, 23, Oliver Lacey, 23, Joseph Bredehoff, 25. These 17 men were tortured and murdered and in some cases cannibalized by Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer is from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, He is perhaps the most notorious serial killer in the 20th century. And he was sentenced to life in prison. And in prison, he was beaten to death one day while he was cleaning out on work detail the gymnasium bathroom by an inmate with a broom handle. But just before Jeffrey Dahmer died, Jeffrey Dahmer repented of his sins. Jeffrey Dahmer came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Jeffrey Dahmer became mentored by a man named Roy Ratcliffe, who was the prison chaplain. Every week, Roy met with Jeffrey Dahmer months before his death. And Jeffrey Dahmer became a voracious reader of Scripture because he thought the state got it wrong, that he should have been put to death but he came to understand the grace and the glory of Jesus Christ. And there's a problem when we hear that story, isn't there? Because we think about somebody as heinous and awful as Jeffrey Dahmer, and we think Jeffrey Dahmer should have died. He did not deserve to be a Christian. I mean, listen, you're most of you, most of you are better in this room than Jeffrey Dahmer. I hope. <laughs> he cut people up. It's horrible what he did. And yet if it's true that Jeffrey Dahmer became a Christian, and all the evidence, people who knew Jeff toward the end of his life, said that he was a changed man and he was different. If that's true, then one day, one day, when you are in heaven, Lord willing, if you're in Christ, you will Grab the shoulders of your brother, Jeffrey Dahmer, and you will both be called children of God. And when God looks at Jeffrey Dahmer, despite the horrible life he led, God will pronounce over him, You are righteous, and you are a child of the King. And the problem with a lot of us as we hear sermons on the sixth commandment is we immediately think, Well, it's about murder. I don't murder. don't murder the real problem in your heart is that you actually hate grace because when people like Jeffrey Dahmer are able to be called a child of the king like if it was just you and Jesus and Jeffrey Dahmer and you were sitting around and Jesus were to say look at all these sins that I have died for for you if he were hypothetically to do that you would just go stop talking about me look at him what about me look at him And friends, what the Bible tells us is that this is a room full of Jeffrey Dahmers. And while we may not have done the things that Jeffrey Dahmer has done, sin is sin. And those of us who are in Christ are pronounced righteous and holy in his sight. Because I can't read Matthew chapter 5, 21 through 26. Can you with a very clean conscience? I have murdered people in my heart. It says if I'm angry with somebody, murder starts with anger. I haven't been convicted. I haven't run across Milwaukee from the authorities, but oh, I have run from God. I have cut people up in the way that I think about them. Have you? Thou shalt not kill. One of the problems with the church today is that we are a church that thinks we have it all together. And we paint this grace-like appearance, but in our hearts, we actually hate grace because when we see people that are as heinous as Jeffrey Dahmer, we look at them with scorn and we say, you don't deserve that. You don't deserve grace. I do. I have a church plant get started. I deserve grace. I haven't killed anybody. Listen, I may say, I may say on my worst day, I may think under my breath, Oh, my children, I just want to kill them. But Jeffrey Dahmer actually did it. But until you're able to say, I'm Jeffrey Dahmer, you're not seeing the beauty of the grace of God or the horror of what's, of what's in your heart. When um, In 2 Samuel chapter 12, David, uh, remember he, he uh, sleeps with Bathsheba, he kills Uriah, and Nathan comes up and tells him a story about a man who his family has a um, goat, and they take this goat, and uh, someone comes and kills it, and J- David goes, oh, that guy should be killed, and Nathan says those famous words, doesn't he? David, you're the man. And later in in Matthew, there's a story where Matthew tells um, about Jesus telling a story about the laborers in the vineyard, and the manager of the vineyard says, "I'll pay I'll pay you one denarii if you work for twelve hours today." And so they start to work, and they're working, and then the manager brings on more guys halfway through the day, and they work, and he brings on somebody at the very end of the day. They only work for an hour, and the end of the day, they give out the money, and these guys who've been working for twelve hours a day are shocked. Do you see that Jesus gives them all the same thing? I worked for 12 hours. They only worked for one. You give them the same amount of money, that's not fair. Listen, the notion of your idea of fairness, can I just be honest, is more American than it is biblical. Because we believe that we can define the contours of fairness And the scripture, my friend, simply says that God is the one who determines the boundaries of life and the boundaries of death. And it's God who judges what is fair And as he helps us see the beauty of the gospel, he helps us recognize that the question is not why did he wipe out cities and towns? The question is how in the world are we still here able to breathe in without pain and to enjoy one another in fellowship together? It's an amazing act of common grace. And for those of you who are in Christ, it's an amazing act of reconciliation with God, your Father, who loves you. Thou shalt not murder. The focus of the command is very simple. It is broader than the word murder. It is narrower than the word kill. The framework for the command is that life and death is God's business. You have to have an authority that you rest upon to answer these ethical questions. What is your authority? And we are fraught with very good questions about how to apply this principle in today's world. But before you go there, you need to recognize that when Jesus preaches on this topic... Jesus convicts us all. And Jesus essentially says, friends, you're worse than Jeffrey Dahmer. Because just breaking one of my holy commandments deserves the wrath of God. And Jesus took on that wrath for us. Brothers and sisters, don't say, look at that guy, what a sinner he is. You should be able to say before your Father in heaven, before Jesus right now, thank you that while I do not deserve you you have given yourself to me I don't deserve your presence I don't deserve your joy but friends he is wrapping your arms around you and he is telling you listen I know you've gotten angry some of you may have even murdered really maybe but he offers you the gift of forgiveness And sin does not come without consequences. Sometimes the consequences means you will lose your life or you will be in prison for the rest of your life. But the spiritual consequences are taken care of by your Savior who loves you, Jesus your King, whose blood was shed so that yours would not have to. That's good news. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you'll take our hearts and you'll help us to recognize our tendency to hate grace. People who we think are worse than us, we, Lord, I confess, we sometimes we sometimes believe they don't deserve it. But we are the man. Thank you, Jesus, that you have mercy on us. And thank you that you invite us into a relationship with you to be honest about the depths of sin in our hearts and to take joy in your loving embrace. For you, Call those who believe in you by faith, your covenant children. Thank you for the gospel. Amen.